0: This morning, um, I want to talk to you about having a vertical mind in a horizontal world. A vertical mind in a horizontal world. Uh, Doug, my mic is just a little, it's just, I'm getting a lot of, it's just feeling weird up here. If you could just turn it down or something, I don't know. Thanks, man. Um, a vertical mind in a horizontal world. What that means is, is that being able to have the right kind of perspective when you're in a world of opposition and adversity, it means setting your mind on things above. The verse that I kept thinking about when I was thinking about what we're talking about today is I kept thinking about Colossians chapters 3, chapter three, verses one and two. It says there, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That's what we're talking about. The ability to set our mind on things above and not on things on earth. Now, if you're like me, you probably struggle to do that. That's not an easy thing to regularly kind of set my mind on things above, things that are good, things that God wants me focused on. Sometimes my mind gets focused on the horizontal before I think about the vertical. You remember when, G- when Jesus had Peter come out on the water? Y'all remember that story? And, and, and Jesus walking on the water and Peter's like, I want to come out on the water. And Jesus like, well, come on. And he gets out on the water. He's got his eyes fixed on Jesus, right? And he's walking on the water. But then what did he do? He stopped looking at Jesus. He started looking at the storm. And what happened? He began to sink. Now, of course, in our life, we have a horizontal realities. We got practical daily things that we have to think about and that we got to work through. But I think the idea of setting our mind on things above and being vertically minded in a horizontal world means that we don't interpret how God thinks of us or whether we should be happy or not based on practical daily things that we can see. We base what God thinks of us Based on what he says and who he is, not what we are seeing. Another way to think about a vertical mind in a horizontal world is we want to live by faith and not by sight. We want to live by faith and not by sight. And the question is, how can we do that? Turn with me to Acts chapter 12, and we pick up this story in the Spreading Flame, an interesting chapter. It almost seems like a needless chapter, really, in the flow of the narrative of the story. But when we begin to look at it, we begin to look at the church dealing with this reality of there's horizontal things that are happening against them, horizontal opposition, physical, practical difficulties in their life, and yet spiritually and invisibly and vertically God is working in the difficulty of opposition. Let me read to you the beginning of this chapter and then the end of this chapter to show you this horizontal, vertical contrast. Look at Acts chapter 12, and let's read verses 1 through 4. It says there, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And that... And the Greek and all scholars agree that that means he beheaded James. So he, he lopped off James's head with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now, there's your horizontal reality. Your horizontal reality for these Christians and for the church is that Christians are being arrested. This Herod, Herod Agrippa in particular, who is the grandson of Herod the Great. Remember Herod the Great during the whole Christ nativity scenes and various things like that. Here's the grandson of Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa, and he is persecuting the Christian church. And Herod Agrippa, a great guy. Everybody say, great guy. Of course, you're being sarcastic, right? Right being sarcastic this guy ends up as a child being sent to Rome to be educated in Rome and we know from secular history that when he went to high school he went to high school with such guys as Caligula and Claudius some of the most vicious Roman emperors that ever existed in the whole history of Rome and that was his buddies all right Caligula and Herod Agrippa were high-fiving and hammer-swing. And Caligula was the one, and Claudius were the ones that gave him power. He gave him as much power as his grandfather had. And so as he is ruling and having all of this power and all of this pomp, he's arresting these Christians, and he beheads one of the most beloved apostles, which is James. James the apostle, the big brother of the apostle John. You know John from the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. James was his big brother, And James was one of the first disciples that Jesus ever called. He said, James, I want you to follow me. And James was the one that went and got John and said, we're going to follow Jesus. And together, they followed Jesus. James and John and their father were in the fishing business with Peter and Andrew and their daddy. And they were all fishing. And Jesus called them. And James was one of the three of the inner circle of the disciples with Jesus. So Jesus was closest to James, Peter, and John. Those were the first three And James had a front row seat to the Mount of Transfiguration. James had a front row seat to the Garden of Gethsemane. James had a front row seat when Jairus' daughter got raised from the dead in that inner room. James was beloved and one of the leaders in Jerusalem. And here's Herod Agrippa and he's going and he's arresting this beloved apostle. And James ends up being the first of all the apostolic circle to be martyred for Jesus. Interestingly, if you were to look up. Mark chapter 10 verse 39 Jesus promised James you're going to be baptized with the same baptism I'm being baptized with. Jesus had told James you're going to be martyred for your faith and here's the fulfillment of Jesus's prophecy. And so just like how many of y'all, y'all know about these terrorist groups, ISIS and Al-Qaeda and what's going on in the news right now. You see these terrorist groups and they're beheading people and they're arresting people and they're putting the beheadings on YouTube and on Google and on 24-hour news. And you see this going on around the world. And don't you know this has always been going on, hasn't it? Our horizontal world is a world of terrorism. Our horizontal world is a world of tragedy and difficulty and persecution and suffering and loss, terrible, terrible loss. Here's this horizontal world and of course the church and Christians are meant to be intimidated by Satan. They're meant to be intimidated by this power and this pomp and these political realities that are working against them. And you and I have horizontal realities that sometimes are very difficult to deal with. But when we go to the end of the chapter, now go to the end and go to Acts chapter 12 and look at verses 21. Here's the way this ends. It says, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. Gives one of the greatest speeches of his life, apparently, because the people were really impressed by his speaking and the way he looked. We know from Josephus who talked about this very day. Josephus said he was wearing silver and it was shiny and he gave this speech. Verse 22, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And there's how it ends. The story begins with Herod triumphing, James being killed, Peter being imprisoned, and the story ends with Peter being released, Herod being killed, and the gospel of Jesus triumphing in the world. There's your vertical reality because anything you're seeing, God is at work vertically. God is at work in all things at all times, and that's the secret of this chapter, it's The question, kind of the probing question for the church and the probing question for you and I is are we going to live horizontally? Are we going to be so focused on what we see that we're filled with anxiety or fear? Or are we going to live vertically and believe in God no matter what we see and live by faith and not by sight? This is important. It's important that you learn how to cultivate a vertical mind in a horizontal world. And let me give you three reasons why it's important. Because number one, either you're intimidated by this world. This world brings fear to you. Maybe you do have seen some of those videos or you've heard some of those stories about terrorists. And all the media outlets talking about ISIS is everywhere. And they're going to get us. And we go, oh, it's an evil world. And, And you get filled with fear and anxiety. You look at culture and you get scared for yourself and for your family and you live with worry and anxiety or maybe it's not anything that dramatic. Maybe you're just intimidated by life, period. You're just a fearful person and you're anxious. And the solution is to live vertically, not horizontally. The solution is to live by faith and not by sight. Others of you, maybe you're influenced by the world more than you are influenced by God and by invisible realities, your whole life, you want to be influenced by this world. You want to live by the lust of the eyes, the desires of the heart. You, you, you like the message and, and the philosophies of the world that's materialistic. You're, you're attracted and influenced by the world, and God is asking you to think differently, to not base your life or your happiness on what you see, but to base your life on what you should be believing. Or maybe some of you, you aren't influenced, but you're just impressed. You're more impressed with the world than you are God. You, when you wake up in the morning, and this happens to me too, sometimes I wake up in the morning and ten things are Ten things are more important to me than Jesus is. Ten things are are, are more of a, of, of a reality to me than, than God is. And I wake up with so many other things more important than Jesus. And God is saying that my solution is to cultivate a vertical mind, not a horizontal life. So that Jesus and God will become more important. I'll start thinking like I should. And so we come to this this chapter, and we beg Acts chapter 12, we're begging Acts chapter 12, what do I need to be reminded of? What do I need to review? What is it that I need to do so that I can set my mind on things above? And, and so when we come back to Acts chapter 12 to answer that question, we remember that this is kind of a chapter of review. It's a, almost a halfway point in the book of Acts, and it's reviewing themes that we've already talked about. So consider this a review and consider this a a way of reminder of some basic things that you and I have to remember as we go through life. I am really hot right now. I'm glad I wore a short sleeve shirt. Are you hot? Hey, man. Go like this. Go. (laughs) Okay, don't do that. You might spit. Okay. So what do I need to remember to cultivate a vertical mind in a horizontal world? Number one, you need to remember that prayer opens doors. Prayer opens. Opens doors. While this stuff is going on horizontally. You know what the church is doing? The church and Christians are praying. And this prayer. The prayers of a righteous people availeth much. Says the King James Version of the book of James. Look at the church. While all this bad horizontal stuff is going on. They're not afraid. They're not intimidated. They're not impressed. They're not influenced. They are praying. And you and I have to cultivate lifestyles of prayer because prayer opens doors. Look at this, verse five. So Peter's in, in jail. Every, you know, you would think, oh no, we're, you know, we're gonna freak out because Peter's in jail, but that's not what they do. They pray. Verse 5: So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter the fact everybody say he loves I love the fact that Peter is sleeping don't you love that I love that he's you know you know we're like how could he sleep he's like in prison he's chained to these guards everything looks bad and the dude is sleeping and we ask how could he do that well number one he's getting kind of used to being put in prison amen He's getting to be quite the professional at this. He probably got arrested, got chained up, said, can I take that corner? Because I'm going to sleep over there. Is that cool? Is that good with you? And they're like, this guy is killing me. He's sleeping. So he's sleeping. And he's sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door was guarding the prison. I mean, they are treating this guy like a top-notch prisoner. I mean, he's chained to guards and everything. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, and from all the Jewish people were expecting and when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Now stop there. This is great. Peter's in jail. He's so asleep. So he's in jail. The angel comes and goes, lah! light, burst into the cell. Dude still doesn't wake up. The angel kicks him in the side and says, wake up. And he's got like, you know, bedhead, And you know he had a long beard. You know what I'm saying? And he's got a long beard, bed head. Light doesn't wake him up. Angel says, get up. He's drooling. He's still so groggy. He thinks he's still dreaming. And ultimately, the angel leads him out and gets him outside of the gate, outside of the prison. And why? Because of prayer. Because of prayer. Thomas Watson, who, one of my favorite Puritans, and I love how the Puritans of the 17th century could say things better than we could today. But he was like, The angel fetched Peter, but prayer fetched the angel. Isn't that good? Isn't that a good reminder? And you know what? What I've learned about the book of Acts is that it is a self-help guide to prayer. How many times is the church praying and things happen? Acts chapter 1, they're in the upper room. They pray. Acts chapter 2, while they're praying, the Holy Spirit comes. Acts chapter 4, they pray for boldness and the Holy Spirit comes and it shakes the place. Acts chapters uh, 6 and 7 and Cornelius and Peter and, and while they're praying, the angels come and visit them and hear the church praise and the angel releases and opens the door so that Peter can escape. And what you and I have to cultivate and what we have to remember is that prayer is critical for having a vertical mind In a horizontal world. And you really need to do two kinds of prayers. The first kind of prayer is your private prayer. You need to have a private prayer life with God. You need to have conversations and a relationship with God that is consistent, and you need to pray. What did Jesus say? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 6 Jesus said, when you pray, go into your room. And shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Do you have a room? Do you have a closet? Do you have a place you go to to have a conversation with God? Is that the bathroom? Is that the basement? Is that a private room that you can get away from everybody and spend some time with God and talk to God? you have a place you can go and and verbally lift up specific words to God. I believe one of the reasons why our church is lacking in effectiveness in our country and in our culture for real spiritual revival is because American Christians have forgotten have forgotten the power and don't really believe in the power of prayer because we live in a world that says for practical problems, you need practical solutions, not spiritual disciplines. But God keeps reminding us time and time again that practically we have to have the spiritual discipline of prayer. You're too busy not to pray. You're going through too much opposition not to pray. You're you're going through way too much. You're being attacked spiritually and practically your whole life is one big battlefield. And the only way you and I are going to win that battle is if we have time on our knees praying to God. And just like me, And just like everybody else throughout church history, we go through seasons when we're good at this and when we're bad at this. But let church be a constant reminder for us to purpose afresh in our heart. I will talk to God today. I will talk to God this morning. I will lift up words in my car. I will talk to him before I go to bed. I will have a conversation with God. Listen, God's love language is quality time. Can I get an amen? He loves when you spend time with him. And when you spend time with him, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You begin to see things that you wouldn't have seen before. Doors begin to open up that you would have never thought would open up. And you get to walk through those doors because prayer, it fetches angels. It opens doors. It shakes the ground. It fills this world with the Spirit. Pray, pray, pray. All the time, pray. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray continually. Pray continually. So pray privately, but here's the second thing. Pray publicly. What that means is you go and you pray with other Christians. Look at what's happening. What is, what, is, what is verse 12? Verse 12 is a life group. Where are they praying? They're praying in a life group. They're in a home. They're in a house. They're in a really nice house. Everybody say nice house. John Mark's mama, Mary... She got herself a nice place. I love the elegant backgrounds of some of these homes in the book of Acts. Lydia and John Martin, nice home. And they're in the nice home. And they're praying together. And And that is so important. As a matter of fact, I would say this. That your private prayer life really is kind of dependent on you being together with other Christians and you hearing Christians pray. Some of you, you might not know how to pray. You're like, nobody ever taught me how to pray. And you know how you learn how to pray? You listen to other people pray. You know, prayer is better caught than taught. And I'll never forget, um, when I was in high school and I had just become a Christian, I was 17, big turnaround in my life. And uh, I, I had all kinds of really bad habits and, and addictions and things that I was doing that were not right and God was kind of beginning to release and free me from. I was kind of a rebellious high school student. All right, I had a mullet and a tan. Can I get an amen? Amen. I drove a Camaro, had a pull-out stereo that I carried around like a briefcase, <laughs> cassette tapes, you know what I'm saying, Journey's Greatest Hits, you know what I mean, I'm walking around my high school, you know, boo, yeah, what's up, So a pull-out, Pioneer, Super Tuner number three, baby, you know what I mean, I can light this thing up in green or red. One of the bad habits I had is I used to go to bathrooms and I used to smoke cigarettes in bathrooms and i just become a Christian, but I still hadn't broken that habit yet. I, I, I'm, down, I'm done now. I don't do that anymore. Can I get an amen? But I'll go, I was going into the bathroom to do this, and I sensed, seriously, the Holy Spirit said, don't, don't do that. And literally, the Holy Spirit said, I need you to leave the bathroom. I need you to turn right, and there's a brick wall in kind of this auditorium room inside the high school. And I need you to go and look over that wall. And so I left the bathroom. I turned right and I went to this brick wall. And I looked over the wall. And sitting in a circle were Christians. And they were sitting in a circle and they had Bibles open. You know what they were doing? They were praying. And when they saw me, they were like, it was like looking at the Apostle Paul. Remember how the church was like, not him. And I was like, God told me to come here. And they said, sit down, we're praying. And I sat down, and there was a a guy, he's now a pastor in Kansas. His name is Cody Busby. And Cody Busby led this high school Bible group, and I listened to him pray. And that's how I learned how to pray. Because when I heard him pray and these other Christians pray, I would go home, and then privately in my room, I would talk like they talked, and I would talk to God. And that's how I learned how to pray, because I got around other Christians who prayed. And you know what we have as a church? We have something we call life groups. And even this week, just, just this week on Thursday night, my life group just got back together. And we had the sweetest time of prayer. If I'm lying, I'm dying. We were sitting there and we were praying together. And we were praying for real needs and real opposition. We were praying for horizontal realities. And we were asking God, God, help us to believe that you're at work vertically. Be at work in this situation. And we began to pray together publicly. And you know what? We were praying and we were believing that God was going to be at work even in things that seem almost impossible beloved we have got to pray prayer opens doors and as you begin to walk in that truth and remember that what you're going to see is that God's going to work even in the worst possible situations now I have to tell you that when you're praying don't forget to open the door and walk through it and don't leave answered prayers outside of the door in fact, look at verse 12. All right, let's pick it up. Verse 12. It says, When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he, so this is Peter, Peter knocks on the door of the gateway, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice, watch this, in her joy, she did not open the gate. What? Open the gate, girl. But she ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. So there they are. They're praying. (laughs) Get this. It's an imperfect church, man. But they're a praying church, but they're praying imperfectly because they're praying. They're saying, Lord Jesus, please deliver Peter. Lord Jesus, please deliver Peter. Knock, 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 knock. Lord Jesus, knock, knock. Would somebody get that door? Jesus, we're praying here. Rhoda, servant girl, go get the door. We're praying. Lord Jesus. And then she comes back. Peter's there. Right. Now, here's the point. When we pray. Privately and publicly, we need to pray believing that God is going to bring some answers. So that we're looking for God to end. We need to believe that God can do above and beyond all we could ever ask for or imagine. We need to believe that God is active. God's not some cosmic being far away, uninvolved, not doing anything. In fact, he is sovereignly ordained that the means of achieving his ends would happen primarily through prayer. And so when we pray, we need to believe that that door is going to open. And so many of us, myself included, I leave so many of God's answers outside of the door sitting there sitting there I can't become so horizontally minded that I'm not looking for God's vertical answers to my life see this church was praying and they were praying believing that God would move and are we a church that when we pray and when we preach and when we sing we believe that God is working God is at work man God is opening doors, and the doors that God opens, no one can shut. No devil, no demon can shut the doors that God opens for you. Nobody can stop the open doors that God has for you, and it's our job to look up and not leave that door open without us walking through it and saying, I'm going to pray believing that God's going to open doors. I wonder if we could... Write up a list of all the horizontal oppositions and stuff that you're going through, this whole church is going through. If we had a big, massive master prayer list, I wonder what, you would, what you're what you praying about right now. And if you could think about those things, are you believing that God will work all things out for your good? So we have to remember, to have a vertical mind in a horizontal world, we have to remember that prayer opens doors. Here's the second thing we've got to remember. We've got to remember that grace delivers us from evil. Grace delivers us from evil. Uh, When Peter is in this jail and he's asleep, he's clearly passive in his deliverance from this prison. In other words, this ain't Shawshank Redemption, and Peter ain't Andy Dufresne, you know what I'm saying? Like, he didn't go get a rock chisel thing, and like, I'm gonna cleverly uh, create a little hole, and I'm gonna escape. This ain't a prison escape. This is a prison deliverance, there's a big difference, because an escape is, I do it, right? I do it. I'm gonna, I'm going to cleverly work myself through this world. I'm gonna do it on my own, I'm going to come up with my own formulas and my own solutions and I'm going to chisel my way out in the midst of a thunderstorm, crawl through manure. I will come out on the other side in a river, wash myself, put on bank clothes, walk in, get a deposit and go to Mexico. You know what I'm saying? That's Shawshank Redemption reference. Anyways, that's not what happens. Peter is helpless. Peter is not the most cle- Peter's bold, but he ain't clever. You know what I'm saying? And God sends his angel to deliver him. And rightly, throughout church history, preachers have loved this story to preach evangelistically because preachers throughout 2,000 years of church history, starting with Augustine and Ambrose and the Reformers and and the Puritans and the Great Awakening, they've used this text to preach evangelistically because they said, here is our spiritual state. When you and I are born, we're born dead in sin. We're born asleep to God. And even when the light of God is all around us, we stay awake. And we have to be kicked in the side and awakened and regenerated. And we've got to come up to our senses. And then we've got to be led by the angel of the Lord to salvation. And that's how a person spiritually becomes a Christian. How do I become a Christian? I'm awakened by the grace of God. Even passive in my own salvation is a great hymn. Uh, by Charles Wesley, and I've, I'm tempted to think, I'm tempted to think Charles Wesley was thinking about this very text when he wrote it. Here's how this hymn goes: the hymn, and can it be that I should gain? It's the title of the hymn. But Charles Wesley said, "Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke." The dungeon flared with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee, Charles. What? Well, isn't that good? Those old. Hy- I do like those old hymns sometimes. Sometimes, not all times, but sometimes. Great hymn by Charles Wesley, and he's talking about this story and this picture of our our salvation and that our salvation is by grace and not by works. It's the undeserved, unearned favor given to us by God, and God is unobligated to give us this gift of salvation, but he gives it to us, and it's expressed in believing in Jesus that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again and defeated death, and that by believing in him, I am a new creation. And I read these sermons, and I read this church history and this interpretation, and I say, right on, amen, amen. But then I started thinking, you know, that's not really the point, is it? The point is not Peter's salvation, but the point is his deliverance. And what I began to think is, all deliverance from evil, now watch this, all deliverance from evil as unbelievers or believers is by grace. It's because God delivers us. In fact, I would even go further. As Christians, we can't overcome evil. We can't escape the temptation of evil. We cannot escape evil or darkness or sin or addiction without God's grace. God's grace is everything. And sometimes in evangelical churches we say, well, it's the grace of God that saves. But then it's my job to do the rest of the work. No, 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 Everybody say no. Our whole Christian discipleship and growth as believers, our whole spiritual maturation process is rooted in and dependent upon God's grace. Our salvation is by grace, but so is our sanctification is by grace. Both of these realities And just like Peter being delivered from this prison as a believer, you and I sometimes find ourselves trapped by evil. We're surrounded by temptation. The devil and all kinds of opposition surrounds us. And what is it that we have to look for? Not our own resources, but the resources of God. And we have to believe that God can deliver us from evil and bondage and the things that are killing us. And when we begin to walk and remember that grace delivers us from evil, here's what happens. We get humble. We get humble before God. This stuff is the stuff of life and growth. Having a vertical mind in a horizontal world means I am humbled because I know that I am dependent upon God's Grace, and what happens practically when I depend upon God's grace? I'll tell you what happens. What begins to happen is I believe God for the extraordinary, and then I just do the ordinary. I become dependent upon God, and you know what I do when I'm dependent upon God? I sleep. Because I'm not in control. He's in control. It's by grace that I'm delivered. I don't have to worry about delivering myself. I'm believing he's going to deliver me. You know what I do when I'm depending upon grace? I put on my sandals. Isn't that what the angel says? Angel's like, I got the chains, I've got the guards, I've got the guy. I'm going to do all the work. All I need you to do, put on your sandals, put on your shirt, put on your clothes. Come on, follow me. And you know what the story is? God does the extraordinary, I do the ordinary. Grace delivers me from evil. But when it comes down to me and my works, then I become overwhelmed by life. I become overwhelmed by the horizontal world. And I don't put on my sandals. I don't sleep well. I don't put on the shirt. I don't walk. I I just kind of lay there paralyzed because I know that I am overwhelmed, that life is too overwhelming for me to handle. I need to depend upon God's grace to deliver me. You cannot have a vertical mind in a horizontal world without not having a robust belief that your whole life and your whole existence is dependent upon God and his grace. And I think Peter, in fact, I want to take you to something that Peter wrote many years after this experience in his life. He wrote this when he was an old man, and I think he's thinking about this prison escape. But he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, as he's instructing the churches in the grace of God, here's what practically, depending upon the grace of God for deliverance, looks like. Look at this, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and following. It says, he says to the churches, and by the way, these churches are going through opposition, horizontal persecution. These Christians are being persecuted for their faith. And and Peter's instructing them how to handle this horizontal world of terror. And he's saying, have a vertical mind. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, What anxieties do you need to take off your own shoulders and cast into the hands of God? Cast those anxieties onto God. He cares for you. Doesn't grace tell us that God loves us? Aren't we deeply loved by God? You say, sometimes I look at my life and I don't know. Sometimes it doesn't look like God loves me very much. Oh, but he does. Because he gave Jesus to you. He gave Jesus to die for you. And he demonstrates his love for you and that he gave Jesus. And there is your grace. He cares for you. Verse 8. Be sober-minded. I did a word study on that a couple weeks ago. Sober-minded really means taking spiritual things very seriously. That's what sober-minded means. Letting spiritual things bring sobriety to your life. Having gravitas and the way you think about spiritual matters. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter's saying, I, I've been in prison before. I, I I've... I've I felt the very breath of Satan on my neck while I while I sat in those prisons. I know that he, he's seeking to devour. I, I remember how James was beheaded by Herod. And I learned that you've got to resist the devil and that you've got to stand firm in your faith. Verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace. Oh, I just... I love it, don't you? Aren't you glad you came to church today? Oh, I'm so glad to preach today. What a privilege it is to tell you of the God of grace. What a privilege it is to declare in this hall the God of grace. Oh, the God of all grace who has called you to eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you grace delivers us from all evil because God in his grace loves us and he cares for us and you're just we're we're all alike we're all alike and we go through trials and we go through moments of deep doubt and insecurity we go through moments when we wonder if it's all going to work out We go through moments when we wonder if we've utterly failed and there's no coming back. We go through moments when we wonder if we will ever break the chains that continue to lock us down. We wonder. And Peter's like, I've been there. I've been there in denial. I've been there in suffering. I've been there in trials. And I'm telling you, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and the God of all grace. The God of all grace. He will deliver you. Because he delivers us from all evil. Man, you want, you want to have a vertical mind in a horizontal world? <laughs> Baby, you need to believe in grace. Believe in grace. Prayer opens doors. Grace delivers us from evil. And then finally today, how can I have a vertical mind in a horizontal world? Mission, remember, remember, mission is our purpose. Mission is our purpose. We pick it up in verse 16. Let's just pick it up there. It says, but Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed, and motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Now, the James there is different. That's James, the brother of Jesus. And James, the brother of Jesus, is going to become the new leader in the Jerusalem church. So, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when they, they came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had happened to Peter. Peter. And then verse 19, Herod kills all the guards that let Peter go. So he's like, what happened to Peter? And they're like, we don't know. He like escaped. And he's like, off with your head. Verse 20. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And there, on a appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God, and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Well, that's pretty. Okay, verse 24. But the word of God increased and... It multiplied. Now, ultimately, Luke's point is to get us to these two verses. Verse 23, the contrast of Herod thinks he's he's triumphing. Herod Herod thinks that he's the man. Uh, He's now the big king, big guy, big man. And and when people say, oh, you're divine, you're God, he's like, yeah, you know, I probably am a God. (laughs) You're probably right. And and God God says in in Isaiah chapter forty one verse eight I will share my glory with no one. And that by the way, that includes you and I. You and I make really bad gods, don't we? Our whole culture is people walking around thinking they're gods, that they can create their own rules. They're master of their fate, captain of their soul. And there always is the day when every human being will face the one true God. And Herod's being slaughtered here by God is a reminder that this God of grace is also a God of justice. And for those who are outside of Christ and his sacrifice will be judged in everlasting eternity. They will be reminded forever and ever and ever in the very fires of hell that they are indeed not God at all. Luke wants us to remember all the presidents of the world, all of the emperors, all of the kings, all of the nations are but a drop in the bucket to the incomparable greatness of God. Why do the nations rage and the Gentiles plot in vain? The one thing that will always continue to triumph, no matter what we do or what anybody else does, is the triumph of the gospel. Kings will not triumph; the gospel will triumph. And in verse twenty-four, it says that that the word of God increased and multiplied. And you know what we're being reminded of as a church and as Christians? That God is not about our comfort. God is about commission. God is not about us increasing all of our pleasures. God is about our pleasures being rooted in the advance of the message of God. The church does not exist as a country club. The church is not a self-help club. The church is not a place where we come together and feel better about ourselves. The church is a place where we are reminded that we exist to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're like, what is the mission? What What is the mission that is this purpose? It's two things. You see it in verse 24. It says two things. It says, that the word of God increased, circle that word, and that the word of God multiplied. Circle that word. The word "increased" there in the Greek it means it grew. What, what an interesting way to describe the word of God, don't you think? The word of God. It it grows. Like it doesn't grow. It's a complete canon. was 66 books. It doesn't get any bigger. I mean, sure, Pastor Josh has got kind of a thick, you know, shotgun Bible, but, I mean, it doesn't really grow. What does it mean when it says that the word of God grows? What it means is, is that Jesus talked about the parable of the sower and the seed going out, and the word of God is a seed, and when it goes into good soil, you know what it does? It bears fruit, and the mission Is that the word of God would bear fruit in your life? That it would grow in your heart and in your mind? What what I wrote down is that the mission of the church is, number one, it's the quality of discipleship. The mission of the church is that all of us would learn the word. We would let it dwell in us richly and it would produce fruit. And we would grow and mature and flourish by hearing the word of God. That's your mission. Your your mission is to receive the word of God like a seed and to let it come into you and dwell on it and it needs to bear fruit in your life. How How important is that to have a vertical mind in a horizontal world to make sure that you're making the word of God the emphasis of your mind, that your mind is being renewed by the word of God. That means when you come to church and Pastor Josh opens up this Bible or an elder opens up this Bible or a teacher opens up this Bible you need to be ready to go I'm ready to lean in man I'm ready to learn I, I find that, that learning this word is more important than any college class I've ever taken or any high school class or any seminar I've ever gone to or any training exercise at work this is the most important thing that I am to learn I'm to learn this seed and let it come into me maybe that means for some of us we go to bed a little earlier on Saturday can I get an amen You want to be rested, refreshed, ready to sit there, you're ready to take notes, you're ready to talk to life group about all that great information that Pastor Josh worked so hard to give to you. I'm working hard, baby. Don't make my work in vain. Come ready. Your mission The purpose of your existence is not the comfort of your life or growing your luxurious lifestyle. The purpose of your life is that you would bear fruit because you heard the word of God and it came into you and it comes out of you. And people begin to look at you and go, what's that coming out of your life? Oh man, that's the word of God growing is what that is. That word of God has grown in the way I talk. That word of God has grown in the way I think. That word of God has grown in the way I act. That word of God is, is growing in the way I walk. It's increasing. It's growing in me. Quality of discipleship is our mission. But here's the second thing a quantity of disciples is our mission. The word of God increased. And multiplied. More people, more disciples. See so some churches, they're like, man, we we don't need any more disciples, we just need better disciples. And other churches are like, well, we just need more people. We're not really worried about death. Some churches are worried about quality of discipleship, but they don't care about a quantity of disciples. In fact, if they had it their way, the church wouldn't grow because it's pretty comfortable this size so Jesus died on the cross and rose on the third day so that we could be saved from hell and we're okay with other people going to hell the mission is not just a quality of discipleship the mission is a quantity that more people would be reached and that we as a church would strategize would dream and would have visions, visions as large as God's very mission, visions as large as the world that would include reaching more people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this church was willing to risk a lot. This church was willing to say, you know what, if the mission is our purpose, then we need to take more risk. We need to make decisions. It's better to go out there and to invest our talents than sit on them. And when Jesus comes back and says, we were really good stewards with our stuff, and yet we didn't reach anybody. Jesus would rather us risk everything to reach more people and fail than succeed at doing nothing and still being here. I've been to too many meetings, beloved, as a pastor. And it's never said in words. Boy, but it's said in tone. Oh, let's not risk. Let's just protest. Stay safe. I don't want to think outside of the box. I don't want to think about getting larger. We're okay. We, we don't have any debt. We're safe here. We're, we're all right. That's horizontal thinking, beloved, not vertical. If you want to be vertical-minded in a horizontal world, then you have to say we exist to risk everything. James is beheaded. People are dying. People are going to prison. People all over the world are being persecuted for the faith. We dare not be safe. We dare not be Only making predictable decisions and making safe decisions that every other common human being would make. No, we want to make extraordinary decisions to advance the gospel because Jesus died that all people would be reached. We have to add to our routines and the habits of our thinking. The idea that we exist for so much more than what we are experiencing We refuse, we refuse to not be on mission. Mission is our purpose. Sometimes, you know, my life, (laughs) my life sometimes feels like Groundhog Day. How many of y'all feel like that? Have y'all ever seen that movie Groundhog Day? Have you ever seen that movie with Bill Murray? We watched that the other day. And he wakes up in this little town, and it's the same day over and over again, you know what I'm saying? And he wakes up, and and at first it's kind of cool, because he can kind of manipulate the day, because he's experiencing the same day over and over and over, same day on the calendar, and he can manipulate people and everything like that. But he gets so sick of it. And you know my day feels, sometimes my life feels like that. You know, like when I go to the gym, I always go to the gym at the same time. I go on the same treadmill. How many of y'all like that? And I go over and I lift weights. I go to the go over the bench. And there's always that lady over there. And she literally, she's in her third trimester of pregnancy. And she's been like that for two years. Okay. She is eight months pregnant. And it's really annoying. And I want to go over to her. I don't talk to women at the gym. But if I did talk to women at the gym, i go over to her and I'd say, when are you going to have the baby? You've been pregnant for two years. You know what I'm saying? And, you're, and you bench more than me, so I really need you to have the baby so you no longer come. Okay? Because I'm embarrassed by you. Okay? Anyways. We have the same. Ret- Look at you. Look at you. Look around. How many of y'all are sitting in a different ch- chair? Okay. Y'all are mixing Lisa back there. Lisa, I've never seen you back there. You're breaking the habit. All the rest of you, Groundhog Day. You're Groundhog Day, all right? And, you know, God made us to, to, to work on routines and to create habits. That's not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with having a routine and having a schedule. But here's what I would implore you to add to your routine and add to the habits of your Groundhog Day. Number one, receiving the word of God sincerely, earnestly, diligently. What part of your day, every day, are you going to receive the word? And secondly, that you are praying that more people will believe in Jesus and that you're keeping your eyes open for people to pray for, to reach with the word of God. That's your mission. See, and That's our mission. That's what we exist to do. A quality of discipleship and a quantity of disciples. And when we think like that, we become more vertically minded in a horizontal world. Prayer opens doors. Grace delivers us from evil. Mission is our purpose. Let us pray. God, I thank you for your word and your gospel. And we just... Holy Spirit ask that not only would the word come into our heart, but you would make our heart to kind of soil it would be healthy, kind of soil where the word would bear fruit, that it would dwell in us richly. God, I thank you for Cross Point Church. What a what a beautiful day and a beautiful people and a beautiful church you have given us to be able to freely and with boldness and eagerness to preach and teach God's word. I thank you for that. And God, I pray today that, uh, that you would just bless us in these areas, that whatever's going on in our horizontal life, you would cause us to fix our eyes on you. You would help us to live by faith and not by sight. And that that would include a life of prayer that would be natural, not under compulsion, but a cheerful prayer life. That would include being delivered from evil because we've humbled ourselves and depended upon you and your grace. And Lord, that we're people that live on mission.